I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and, you know, it hit me the other day that we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of Superman Returns. Or, depending on when I choose to release this, the 10-year anniversary of Superman Returns has come and gone. Flip a coin on that one. But, uh, it also occurred to me that You know, I don't think I've ever just gotten right up and given you guys my God's honest opinion about Superman Returns. Now, a lot of you know that I'm not all that big on Superman Returns. I mean, that's not breaking news to anybody, as far as I know. But I don't think I've ever gone over the movie with a fine-tooth comb and just talked about it. What I can say, though, is that time has a funny way of clarifying things for you. It's been nearly 10 years since Superman Returns was released. And I think back on how things were back in 2006 versus how they are now. And... Man, it's a totally different scenario now. Back in 2006, I was a mess. I was still coping with grief about some stuff and probably coping with other things too. I was single and not really looking for anything. I just, I guess maybe the way to say it is I went back and forth about wanting to just be left alone. But today I've committed to somebody and have accepted her child as my own. Those are a few of the things that have changed. There's more, but I'll spare you for now, anyway. Now, I've said many times that Superman Returns was a bitter fucking disappointment for me on a lot of levels. I mean, it was so personal. You know? A real stab in the back. That's how I felt back then. Now? Well, now 
I don't think I'm prepared to say that I love Superman Returns, because I don't think I ever will. I think that ship sailed. But I'd like to think that I can put Superman Returns into some type of better context these days. For starters, it needs to be said that Superman Returns is not a high-octane, summer blockbuster action-adventure film. It just isn't. I think people might be willing to tolerate a pensive Superman movie now, but not as the first Superman movie to come out in nearly 20 years. After that kind of wait, people, and I mean fans here, people would have wanted a big, flashy, whiz-bang movie to reestablish Superman in the popular consciousness. We wanted a Superman movie that fundamentally played it safe and showed us how awesome Superman can be, maybe before getting into how difficult his life can become sometimes. I think what Brian Singer wanted to do in his heart of hearts was a meditation on the Superman-Lois relationship. Now, the prism through which he chose to view their relationship was a type of reunion following an extended absence. A breakup, even. Lois assumes that she's been rejected and abandoned. For his part, Superman feels lost and disconnected. And let's be real. The narrative requires all of these characters to be at least 10 or 15 years older than the actors who are actually playing the roles. So, as long as you keep that age gap in mind, everything else should hold up okay. Well, actually, not really, because the movie has other problems, but you get the idea. I hope. Anyway, so, after returning to Earth, I think it'd be fair to say that Superman was on the fence about returning to Metropolis and resuming his life as, as Clark and all of that. And 10 years ago, I found that dilemma incomprehensible. But today, eh, less so. Remember, the characters are 10 or 15 years older than the actors. That means that this is a Superman who's push, pushing 40 years old. He's been gone for five years, and now that he's back, it's probably accurate to guess he's undergoing the same restless, pensive phase that many people experience during middle age. The big questions you ask yourself, you know? Am I still the person I used to be? Do I even want to be that person anymore? Who am I now? Looking back over the past 10 years, I can relate to those questions on a personal level. The questions are, am I still the person I used to be? Do I even want to be that person anymore? Who am I now? And the realization I had the other day was that the answers to those questions, for me personally, today, are no, no, and something else. Now, I get to have those answers because I have different responsibilities, especially now as compared to 10 years ago. 
a different life even. But frankly, nobody wants to see a Superman movie where Superman gives the same answers to those questions that I just did. So for him, the answers have to be no, maybe not, and Superman, because they need me to be. Had he stayed on Earth rather than chasing the splinters of Krypton, it's reasonable to assume he probably would have had the same midlife crisis that he's having in the movie, but the difference would have been that he would have had Lois and maybe Martha on one side and the AI Jarell on the other side to guide his steps. Or, lacking that, at least clarify on what's at stake. And Lord knows you can't put too high a premium on moral clarity. But that's not what happened. He skipped town to search for Krypton. Now, as laughable as I still find that idea, I can reluctantly admit that Superman knows very well who Superman is. Maybe too well. Clark Kent died alongside Jonathan Kent. And my personal view is that there's little or no personal comfort or sense of fulfillment for Superman when he pretends to be the withered husk of what's left of Clark Kent. And I mean this in, in the Richard Donner framework of things, but Kal-El? You know, maybe there's something for Kal-El to be found among the stars. It's the kind of impetuous decision that he wouldn't have made in his 20s or even in his 50s, but after the shock and confusion of turning 30 and realizing that 40 isn't all that far away now, well, as I say, it's a, it's a retarded story idea, but I could half-ass picture somebody suffering the mother of all early-onset midlife crises, at least considering something that rash. I can't picture Superman doing it, but maybe someone else. In any case, coming back to Earth was the only real option that Superman had. And he wasn't even sure that he wanted to continue being this, you know? The, the icon, the celebrity, the superhero, the metropolis savior. When can he ever have something just for himself, you know? But a casual glance at the news indicates that he's needed as much as ever. But waking up early in the mornings, strolling through cornfields, reminds him of simpler times. As a child, he celebrated his budding superpowers. Maybe he hadn't really mastered them at the time, but still, those were fun days. He was free. But that was a long time ago. What he saw as freedom then has become a crushing personal responsibility now. But at least returning to his responsibilities in Metropolis, and the world at large, will bring Lois back into his life. Right? Except it doesn't. The world hasn't really changed all that much in Superman's absence, but Lois has. She's moved on, buried her feelings and sorrow, forged ahead in a new relationship with a new suitor, and is even raising a child. Guys, this is not remotely what Superman expected to find upon his return. 
his every interaction with Lois in this movie, of which there are very few, oddly enough, but his every interaction with Lois in this movie is tempered by some amount of longing, regret, and yes, of bitterness. I mean, push comes to shove, he's got some right to be upset too. Didn't he earn any loyalty from her? Then again, she interpreted rejection based upon his absence. They both have a legitimate point of view here. Based on the kind of retarded concept of Superman leaving Earth for five years, which as I say, I do not accept, cannot accept, and probably will never accept. Nevertheless, the movie's predicated on that, so I kind of have no choice here but to at least acknowledge that it happened. As retarded as that might be. And, superficially, everything's back to normal. Except it isn't. Lois has a new man in her life. Her son is also Superman's son, and the sad, bitter irony is Lois is living this life with someone else. But, by all rights, it should have been Superman. That should have been their house in the suburbs. And it would have been, had Superman kept his wits about him. He was ready for a change and a new challenge. Such things were already on the horizon and could have been his. Alas. These, I think, are the things Singer wanted to experiment with. And he's welcome to say whatever the fuck he wants to the contrary, but I personally don't believe that the narrative explores those issues as much as he would have wanted to. At the end of the day, Warner Brothers wanted a summer blockbuster that would allow McDonald's to sell a lot of Happy Meals. People make fun of the relatively few action sequences in this movie, and I kind of have to say that it's almost as though Singer's heart just wasn't really in that stuff. But, if you tally up the number of prolonged sequences of nothing but music and visuals, it's pretty clear where Singer's, pri uh, Singer's priorities were. And it's rarely with the explosions and the flying and all that stuff. It's in Clark Kent joyfully watching Lois on TV and losing himself in the love and affection he has for. It's Superman lazily cruising over the city streets and following Lois home. Which, yes, sounds pretty fucking creepy when you say it that way, and I don't really have much of a justification for that. It's in stuff like Superman holding Lois as they glide over the bay and through downtown Metropolis. It's Lois bitterly, silently staring at a computer monitor trying to think of a rational justification for why the world could possibly need Superman. Which, again, is a premise so fucking retarded as to be indefensible, but which Singer seems deeply fascinated with, so whatever. I guess my mulligan on that one is that Lois can't see past her own bitterness. I mean, because honestly, if you can't see a whole lot of utility in having Superman around, I don't know what the fuck to say to you. Anyway. That, I think, was the stuff that Singer was interested in. Those extended moments of 
visuals and music, but with little or no dialogue. I think Brian Singer wanted the audience to experience the characters' emotions with them, rather than being wowed by a, a dazzling special effects review. It might be fair to say that his priorities were absolutely out of line with the mandate given by Warner Brothers, but that, nevertheless, isn't why Singer wanted to make this movie. And it's because of that very dichotomy, in fact, that you could rationally argue that the music does, oddly enough, a better job of conveying the emotions and the drama that Singer was striving for, better than the movie as a finished enterprise. John Ottman's score, at least at times, is a little utilitarian. Because, man, he really wanted to get in and get out with that hero theme, you know? And it can also be a little bit plotting sometimes. And here I'm kind of thinking of anything involving Lex and his gang during the third act. But at the same time, there's a, a wistful melancholy feeling to Acts 1 and 2. And that's where a lot of the drama and the pathos come from. And, like I say, I think that primarily is where most of Singer's priorities were. He wanted to make a romantic drama. Anyway, there's a lot more to say, and I'll have a chance to say it, but it's going to have to wait for the next segment. So, be right back after these messages. Introducing the all-new line of Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Show off your more thoughtful side with these brain-teasing bumper stickers. Such classics as... Have you hugged your snot-nosed Ritalin junkie today? Honk frantically if you're a violent sociopath. I'm the proud parent of a blue-blooded legacy child with mediocre grades. If this van's a-rockin', I'm probably deflowering your teenager. My other car also compensates for an unattractive wife. Honk if you're trapped in a loveless marriage. All of these and hundreds more are available for a limited time only. Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Buy some.
Okay, I'm back now and continuing my look back at Superman Returns. Now, in the last segment, I talked a fair amount about the Superman-Lois relationship. That, I think, is the element of the movie that Brian Singer was probably the most interested in exploring. Oddly enough, I don't think he explored that as much as he might have, but again, that goes back to to the first segment. And it speaks to the high price paid for proud illusions. And there are plenty of high prices being paid for proud illusions in Superman Returns. But anyway, there's another major relationship at play in Superman Returns as a film, and that's between Superman and Lex Luthor. As much as anything, this is a story that lives up to its title. Superman does indeed return in this movie, but this is also a revenge story. Every single action that Lex takes in this movie after Superman makes his big airplane rescue is designed to piss Superman off. Now, it's official backstory for Superman Returns that Lex engineered the news story about the remains of Krypton being located. Lex tricking Superman into leaving the planet cost Superman more than Lex could have possibly imagined. He probably would have savored the turmoil that he'd caused for Superman had he known about it. In fact, it's sort of interesting how you could pretty well view Lex as a corruption of Superman. You see, Lex emulates things Superman does, but always in a destructive way. Superman secretly returning to Earth shakes a building, temporarily disrupts a radio transmission, and rattles a window or two, but in the end, it's really no big deal. It's not like there's anything that, that was damaged as a result of his ship's landing. But when Lex secretly returns to Metropolis after his trip to the Fortress of Solitude, he accidentally triggers an electromagnetic pulse which causes disasters, crises, and damage all over the place. When Lex discovers that Superman's back on the scene, his scheme changes somewhat from a sort of real estate terrorism to bloody fucking revenge. He wants his pound of flesh. Which is weird because, like I said a second ago, if anything, Lex has already hurt Superman a hell of a lot more than Superman ever hurt him, but that's not enough. Not for Lex. This world ain't big enough for both of them. Lex wants Superman out of the picture. Permanently. The moment Superman comes back, you could view Lex's every single movement as an act of pure, unadulterated hatred for Superman. Now, for a lot of years there, people championed Kevin Spacey to play Lex Luthor, and what I think they ultimately really wanted wasn't Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor, necessarily. I think they just wanted this type of a delivery. And Kevin Spacey, as it happens, seemed like the best hope for achieving this. And indeed, they got some of that in Superman Returns, but there are places where what people also got was a heaping helping of Kaiser Soze as Lex Luthor. And when you think about it, that's a completely, totally different thing. When Kevin Spacey plays Lex as a condescending asshole, it's really not half bad. 
Anytime Lex looks down his nose at Kitty Kowalski or Lois Lane, his smug sense of superiority is actually rather appropriate, considering we're talking about Lex Luthor. And this, I think, is what a lot of people hoped for from Spacey as Lex. But when he glowers in the shadows and looks menacing, I don't know. It's like it's like he brings a, a sociopathic element to the character that I believe is a little inappropriate for the character. That moment when Lex and his goons beat the shit out of Superman is probably the most catharsis that Lex has had in five years. And when he has Superman right where he wants him, he doesn't really waste a whole lot of time monologuing or being triumphalist. He just beats the piss out of Superman, lets his thugs kick him around for a while, and then gives him the old kryptonite shank. And every single bit of that's an act of outright hatred and spite. But it's just, I don't know, like, the visceral nature of this, it just seems a little bit at odds with how cool and calm Spacey is for the rest of the movie, and that's the point. To move on to other stuff, though, there's something else that Superman Returns is a little notorious for. And that would be Jason White. Or, as fate would have it, Superman Jr., on the one hand, there's a lot to be said for the concept of Superman searching for Krypton in outer space when a new Krypton is growing up on Earth under Lois Lane's roof. But on the other hand, it's tough to give Superman and Lois a child in a way that doesn't wreck the mythos. And I think that speaks to what Singer was trying to do with this movie. He wanted to move Superman to a new place. Now, we can debate amongst ourselves if such was really all that good an idea. Me? I think giving Superman a kid is what you do when you're ready for him to retire as Superman. Or if you're getting ready for a reboot, in Singer's case. But that is nevertheless what Singer wanted to do. The, pace, the pathos of it is real and affecting, too. It clearly means the world to Superman to meet his own son for the very first time. There's another neat little moment, though. When Superman rescues Richard, Lois, and Jason from what's left of the yacht, he lifts the boat out of the water, tears off the door, grabs Richard's arm, releases his grip on the yacht, and they all watch it plummet back into the sea. Jason, in particular, watches all this with an expression on his face that I think's really poignant. I think he knows damn good and well who he is. He knows exactly what legacy he's inheriting, and he's not, in the least, intimidated by it. It's a powerful addition to the Superman mythos, but there's no denying that it's fatal to the traditional Superman mythos. Had Singer actually been able to make a sequel to Superman Returns, you're probably not far off the mark by assuming it would have been a drastic departure from whatever it is that you've come to expect from Superman in big screen cinema. Say whatever you want about Zack Snyder, but so far, he's mostly colored inside the lines when it comes to Superman. There's really nothing he's done that's completely, totally, abjectly foreign to Superman. But a sequel to Superman Returns would have had to rely upon a complete reimagining of what it is that makes for a great Superman story. Anyway. Another semi-controversial element of Superman Returns was the Superman suit used in the film. Now, 
I can't help thinking that some elements of the Superman Returns outfit exist only because Brandon Routh has very strange proportions. I mean, the guy's pushing like something like 6'3", so his suit has to be long. But the weird thing is that Ralph, Ralph's height comes mostly from the length of his torso rather than the length of his legs. Now, I've kind of sort of met Brandon Ralph, and I'm not exaggerating here. The guy's mostly torso. Well, a Superman outfit is a pretty unforgiving thing when it comes to your body type. If you've got bizarre proportions, a Superman outfit's going to reveal every last bit of that. That, I think, is why the Superman Returns outfit has that crew neck to it, instead of a collar that sits a little bit lower down the chest like a traditional Superman outfit usually would. Compare the neckline on the Superman Returns outfit to the neckline of the Man of Steel outfit to see what I mean. I mean, the collar on the Man of Steel outfit comes so low that you can actually start seeing some of Henry Cavill's chest hair. Now, the Superman Returns costume designer Louise Mingenbach said on at least a few occasions that the Superman outfit used in the movie was designed for Brandon Routh specifically. Had a different actor been cast, she said a different suit would have been designed. This, I think, is why. The other bizarre element of the Superman Returns outfit is the color design. The bodysuit relies on a fairly simple powder blue, which by itself isn't a major departure from what's come before, but the boots, trunks, and cape depend on a shade that's more like maroon or a wine color than a fire engine red that's, I think, more customary and traditional for a Superman outfit. The design philosophy here that Louise Mingenbach explained is that primary colors don't usually mix well together on screen. So one of the colors was going to have to be desaturated and darkened to look better in the film. And she chose to desaturate the red elements of the costume. Which, needless to say, was quite the controversial change at the time. Now, that may seem silly now, considering how much Superman's costume has been butchered in the, in the years since Superman Returns, but trust me, I lived through this shit, and very few people were thrilled with the color design of the Superman Returns outfit. Oddly enough, I think some of the people who were unhappy with it were Warner Brothers' own marketing department. Because... It's very easy to find publicity photos for Superman Returns where the, the costume's been photoshopped into a little bit more of a traditional color design. Just do a Google image search for Superman Returns and before too long, you'll find shit that's been issued by the movie's marketing division showing Brandon Routh wearing, one might say, more conventional Superman colors. Now, it doesn't seem like too big a stretch to imagine that Zack Snyder took lessons from what Brian Singer did. The Man of Steel Superman outfit, whether you love it or hate it, is a major course correction. It looks like the costume designer for Man of Steel, the name of whom escapes me, but it looks like the costume designer for Man of Steel encountered the same challenge of mixing primary colors as Louise, uh, Louise Mingenbach did on Superman Returns. So. To solve the problem, 
he radically darkened the blue elements of the suit. This powerfully sets off the red elements of the Superman costume. The boots and the cape are a very bright shade of red, but they look even brighter because of how dark the blue elements of the costume are. This is the very solution that I've recommended ever since the first pictures of the Superman Returns outfit were first released to the public, and I gotta tell you, it's nice to be proven right. But anyway, frankly, I've never been fond of the Superman Returns outfit. I can understand not wanting to create a replica of the Christopher Reeve outfit because Contemporary audiences might not respond very well to that, but I can't help thinking that something better could have been created. The high price paid for Proud Illusions. Now, to move on to other costumes in the movie, for a fair bit of the movie, Clark wears a, a very 70s looking three-piece suit. So, that's familiar imagery from Superman the movie. I'll say that much. Kate Bosworth pretty much always wears this kind of sort of 1940s throwback type of wardrobe. It looks sort of like basically anything that Lois would have worn back in the old Fleischer Superman shorts. And speaking of Fleischer, the basic design scheme of the Superman costume looks for lack of a better way to put it, kind of art deco to me. This version of the Superman outfit is therefore, believe it or not, actually a kind of a, a good aesthetic match for, Bos, for Bosworth's wardrobe. Neither this basic Superman outfit design, nor Bosworth's various costumes would look out of place in a Superman animated show set in the 1940s. Kevin Spacey's wardrobe is a little bit more dependent upon that turn-of-the-century robber baron aesthetic with the fur collars and, all, and the long coats and all that stuff. On the one hand. But on the other hand, his trousers typically have a slightly military cut to them, and his boots look kind of like combat boots to me. The design style of Metropolis is alternately fairly modern and fairly art deco-y. So, Overall, I'd say that the costumes of Superman Returns clash pretty fucking bad with one another, and because of that, there's really no consistent aesthetic present through the film. The three main characters, which is to say Lois, Lex, and Clark, all have their own styles from various points in American history, while all the supporting characters wear more or less contemporary fashions. It's just very strange. To move on to other things, though, there's the issue of continuity. Now, it's common knowledge that Superman Returns gets criticized a fair bit for relying too much on Richard Donner, but one must ask, how accurate is that criticism really? Yes, you can't ignore the structural similarities between Superman Returns and Superman the movie, but I guess from the standpoint of continuity, it looks like Superman Returns isn't entirely Donner. What I think is Brian Singer wanted to tell a story where Superman returns after a very long absence. 
and he didn't want to take the time to build his own universe from the ground up. Well, to do that, by definition, you kind of have to rely upon an existing continuity. Richard Donner's was probably the best option back in 2006, so Superman Returns relies upon a lot of elements of the Superman mythos as filtered through Richard Donner, I think simply for shorthand. Now, <clears throat> I say all of this because if you view Superman Returns as the new Superman 3, the continuity makes no fucking sense whatsoever. But if you think of Superman Returns as its own universe that simply relies upon some Richard Donner tropes and iconography, I think it stands a little bit better on its own. But it's really not perfect either way. It doesn't really work as a follow-up to Donner, and it doesn't really work as a standalone piece. One unintentional dis uh, point of discontinuity is with Superman Returns and the cast. Now, as I said before, the characters are about 10 or 15 years older than the actors actually playing the roles. And as long as you keep that in mind, you should be okay. But Brandon Routh specifically, well, he kind of sucks. And I mean as a performer, not just as Superman. I've never seen Ralph in anything where I thought he did a good job. It's just never happened. And the hell of it is that, you know, any number of actors, other actors probably could have done a better job. This is fundamentally an older veteran Superman. So on that basis, I'd wager that somebody like Kyle MacLachlan or Jim Caviezel would have been better in the role. They look their age. As to the other, Gina Davis or Diane Lane could have been great as a middle-aged Lois. These two changes by themselves would have made a big difference. You could believe any one of those actors that I just mentioned in those roles, really without too much trouble. Now, my guess is that Singer skewed the casting 10 or 15 younger than it should have been in order to save room for sequels, but A, that's really presumptuous on his part, and B, I think it's better to risk an actor looking too old in a sequel rather than an actor looking too young in the first installment. As to who could have played the other roles, honestly, fuck it. it. It's not my job to fix this stuff. Again, the high price paid for proud illusions. Now, that's not to say that Superman Returns is a complete write-off. Like I say, there's a decent movie hiding somewhere in the basic concept of Superman Returns, and... One admittedly positive element of this movie is the John Ottman score. First, yes, he adapts several elements of the old Williams score from Superman the movie. You've got the main hero theme, obviously, but there's also the planet Krypton, the death of Jonathan Kent, the Fortress of Solitude, the big rescue, the flying sequence, and love theme from Superman the movie. And probably other shit that I'm forgetting about, too. But... Ottman also devised his own love theme for Superman and Lois. It's a sort of wistful, melancholy thing that sounds appropriately nostalgic, yet maybe just a touch mournful. 
It pops up in a few different parts of Superman Returns, notably when Superman flies away from Lois Lane's house after she says that she didn't love him and when he and Lois, later when he and Lois are hovering above Metropolis. I rather enjoy this new Ottman love thing. Again, it's almost more of like a breakup theme than it is a conventional love theme, but it works really well. And it's something that I don't hear most people comment on all that often. Ottman comes up with a few other uh, cues and motifs too. Overall, I don't, I don't think it'd be fair to say that he just piggybacks on Williams. He uses Williams' music when it's appropriate, but just as often he goes in his own directions. Now, I'm gonna be honest and just say that I'm not the biggest Ottman fan in the whole world. I find a lot of his work to be fairly ho-hum in most cases, but I gotta tell you, he did a solid job with the Superman Returns score. It's more than just a John Williams greatest hits jukebox. There's a lot more heart and soul in this score than I think Ottman gets credit for. As I've said, there are legitimate problems with Superman Returns. Now, I've mentioned the casting, but there are issues with the basic story going on here too. Frankly, a lot of all this comes from the fact that Singer is making a sequel to something that either people have never seen, by which I mean Superman Returns exists in its own continuity apart from the Donnerverse. So most people have never seen this. Or else it's a sequel with really shitty continuity to Superman the movie, which is something that most people under the age of 40 haven't seen. Specifically, Superman is returning. But from what? Well, I believe Superman Returns has no direct story connection to Superman the movie. I don't care what Brian Singer says to the contrary. So, an introductory installment to explain this Superman's world, and then show him making the decision to leave Earth, would have been helpful. And that being the case, Superman Returns could have been the aftermath of that. But it isn't. The high price paid for proud illusions. But this approach would have allowed audiences to see Superman's decisions and thought processes. The mere act of doing this would have made the events of Superman Returns more personal and sympathetic. Another thing is, Singer mentioned in interviews that the world had moved on without Superman. And maybe they didn't especially want him back. But that's not really apparent anywhere in the film. We don't see much of the world reacting to Superman, uh, Superman's return. And what little we do see actually shows most people rather excited that he's back. They pretty much instantly accept him. No questions asked. But we don't see really very much at all. In fact, Lois is the only apparent descent that we're privy to. And that speaks to the small scale that Superman Returns is dealing with. Where's the world reacting to and adjusting to Superman's return? Perry calls a staff meeting to talk about those very things. Okay, everybody. 
to know it all, everything. Olson, I want to see photos of him everywhere. No, I want the photo. Sports, how are they going to get that plane out of the stadium? Travel, where did he go? Was he on vacation? If so, where? Gossip, has he met somebody? Fashion, is that a new suit? Uh, health, has he gained weight? What's he been eating? Business, how is this going to affect the stock market? Long term, short term, politics, does he still stand for truth? Justice, all that stuff, lifestyle. Superman returns. Why don't we revisit that stuff later in the film? I mean, you can go a lot of different directions with this. Defense contractors report stock prices plummeting since Superman's presence is a wild card in worldwide military conflicts now. Or people start canceling life insurance policies since, hey, Superman could very well save them if they fall off a building or something. Or... Fading celebrities and professional hangers-on in Hollywood and the entertainment community claim that they've been having love affairs with Superman for the last five years, but he dumped them in order to return to public duty. Um, or maybe, maybe you could have book publishers contacting the Daily Planet with blank checks for Superman in order to write his autobiography. Or there could be invitations from Entertainment for, uh, Tonight for Superman to appear in an exclusive interview on their show. I mean... Guys, fucking, there's, I, there's tons of potential here. But my point is there's no scale to any of this. The high price paid for proud illusions. Speaking of scale, what exactly does the world outside Metropolis think? We never really get to see what the rest of the country has to say about Superman's return. And really, apart from a Japanese game show and what seems like a British talk show, there's no real indication of what the rest of the world thinks either. Basically, we see how a narrow slice of Metropolis reacts to Superman's return, and that's about it. The scale of things affects more than just the narrative, though. On the one hand, this version of Metropolis really does have the vibe of being a city unto itself. Now, I know intellectually that the Superman Returns version of, Me of Metropolis is somewhat modeled on Sydney, Australia. I get that. But here's the thing. I'm not Australian. I'm American. I've never been to anywhere in Australia, and I'm not really too familiar with Sydney. Apart from, like, the opera house, that is. Everybody's seen that. So I'd really have to study what specifically comes from Sydney. But I know for a fact that huge sections of this version of Metropolis are entirely original. It gives the impression of being a truly fictional city, and I appreciate that, on the one hand. But on the other hand, honestly, the illusion is almost always undercut by the fact that everything in this movie looks like a set. Even scenes that probably really were shot outdoors Still, still somehow look like they were shot indoors on a soundstage. And I think the reason for that is because the weird flat lighting that Singer used all through this movie. For comparison, if you watch basically any episode of basically any sitcom, typically they use this sort of bright, flat lighting, just like Singer did. The reason is because it's easier to use basic flat lighting for all the scenes. It's easier, it's faster, and that ultimately makes shooting this stuff cheaper. That 
more or less is the way Superman Returns was lit and shot, too. It looks like a fucking sitcom in places, you know, with the flat lighting. But if you watch basically any episode of Smallville, especially from the Miller-Goff era, they look like feature films. Each camera setup usually has unique lighting to it. There's nothing flat about it, especially scenes that are shot on sets. The characters' faces might be partially covered in shadow, or there could be color timing going to color the footage itself, or there could be any number of other tricks happening. The bottom line, though, is that Smallville, especially in the first seven seasons, looked the way a movie looks. There are rare exceptions to that, and and they mostly just serve to prove the rule. Now, this is significant because Brian Singer had a bigger budget and a much longer schedule to work with, so it's absolutely baffling why his multi-hundred million dollar feature film doesn't look as visually interesting as a TV show with only a few million dollars to work with for each episode. Now... I've heard some very credible rumors about that stuff, and they're not very flattering to Brian Singer. And as it happens, they're completely unverified, so I'll just keep my mouth shut about them. But to move on to something else, and since I really have nowhere else to talk about this, I don't think that Kitty Kowalski is really used all that effectively in this movie. Apart from distracting Superman while Lex robs a museum and then dumping out, later on, dumping out the crystals that Lex stole from the Fortress of Solitude, she doesn't really do too much of anything in this film. Now, Brian Singer said on a few occasions that he gave Lex a maul from a sense of tradition, but he never really knew what the hell to do with her apart from the crystal thing. So, I ask you, why not position Kitty as Lex's conscience? Kitty could have been the character constantly appealing to Lex's better nature. She gets overruled every single time, and ultimately, she ends up trapped on a desert island with Lex, which you could say is a just punishment for putting her faith and her trust in the wrong guy. Something. Anything. But honestly, not much really happens with her. And that's a damn shame, too, because... Parker Posey is a solid actress, and clearly, some amount of thought was invested in Kitty, Kitty, both as a supporting character and just as as sort of a sidekick, gunmall type of character who's kind of an aficionado of Golden Age Hollywood. Another weakness with the film is the lack of interaction that Superman has with Lex Luthor. Until he lands on the Kryptonite Island... Superman probably doesn't even realize that Lex is behind all this. Hell, he might not have even realized he was up against a criminal mastermind through this whole film. So much of Lex's participation in this film hinges on his personal hatred and contempt for Superman. And because of that, I believe that more screen time should have been devoted to Superman and Lex having it out with each other. It should have happened across more scenes than we get here. Another major issue going on here is what a caustic bitch Lois is through most of this film's runtime. She's rude, obnoxious, disobedient, reckless, and irresponsible. Now, Lois Lane should be headstrong, and at times maybe even a little bit impatient, but she shouldn't treat other people like shit. Or if she does, somebody needs to call her out on it. But 
that never happens. So, anyway. As to the narrative at large, Dan Harris and Mike Doherty, the screenwriters of Superman Returns, were both about 25 years old when they wrote this movie. And if this had been a big, dumb, fun, action-packed summer blockbuster, I think they probably would have done okay, too, because that's somewhat inside their wheelhouse. I mentioned creating a first installment prior to Superman Returns, which sets up his, his origin and all that stuff, and you can call that a reboot if you want. Basically, it could have been a fairly straightforward origin story for Superman with a big summer action movie type of tone along the lines of the first X-Men movie or, or just whatever else. And I think Harris and Doherty could have written that type of movie pretty well. I'm sure of it. But Superman Returns is a kind of somber romantic drama. And no small part of that is about getting old. Or maybe getting older. Questioning your life and wondering if the sacrifices you've made were worth it. Taking stock and exploring if you're happy with the life choices that you've made. Superman could have reaffirmed his commitment to truth, justice, and the American way on the one hand, but on the other hand, maybe decided to sit back a little bit more and maybe not take such an such an active hand in steering mankind's destiny. A less active Superman could be the answer here. Or so he thinks to himself. And not just in his mission, but maybe in his personal life too. Maybe deciding that it's okay to leave a few things to chance sometimes. Maybe that's the key to his personal contentment going forward. But I'm going to be honest here, guys. I just don't think these 25-year-old whippersnappers were the guy to tell a story with that level of gravitas to it. The narrative didn't fail them. They failed the narrative. And that's because they just weren't ready for it. The high price paid for proud illusions. The emotional stakes of this story were simply beyond Harris and Doherty at this juncture in their lives. And that's no criticism of those guys. They can't be more than they are as people. I'm just saying that an older screenwriter with a more seasoned experience of life could have been the right choice here. One thing that Superman Returns does relatively well, though, is show Superman actually fighting crime. He foils that bank robbery, and later on we see a news montage of him interrupting an armed robbery in a deli, fighting arson in Paris, and just doing other stuff like that. I don't know about the rest of you, but I would have loved to actually see that stuff in real time rather than just get a summary of it in that news montage. That having been said though, we haven't really seen a whole lot of Superman fighting crime in live action anywhere really, so I view this as a basically positive thing, but as with so much else with Superman Returns, it just could have been done better. This is rather more important than you might first think, too, because Lex Luthor grows a new fucking continent right outside Metropolis, but the city isn't really the worst for wear. Some windows get broken, a gas main gets ruptured, the power uh, goes offline for a few minutes, and the Daily Planet globe takes a fall off the roof of the building, but otherwise, really no big deal. 
A new landmass growing in the bay could have caused earthquakes in the city. Buildings near the coast could have caught fire and maybe toppled over. After being completely evacuated, of course. Riots and looting could have broken out, and all around, Superman really could have had his hands full. This could have been done so fucking much better. And that's important too, since the narrative needs Superman to be separated from Lois just a little while longer. Dealing with all that bullshit would have given Superman a lot more to do, and also would have given the film a much needed boost in the action department, and I don't know, it's just, I, it's, it, it just would have given this movie, I guess, higher stakes, is what I'm saying. Bigger scale, bigger scope. Once again, we're seeing a major disconnect between this film's potential over and against Singer's strengths and capabilities as a filmmaker. A more action-oriented type of director probably would have made those sequences more visually engaging. Left to his own devices, though, my suspicion is that Brian Singer probably wouldn't have even bothered with sequences like that at all, but I'm guessing he got browbeaten by Warner Brothers into putting a little bit of action into what's ostensibly a summer action blockbuster. Apart from those things, though, there are admittedly a few neat moments going on in this movie. No, Superman Returns isn't perfect. It's far from perfect, in fact, but there were a few kind of nifty moments here and there. During the big plane sequence, there's a moment where Lois is pinned against the wall. She's struggling like mad, but the plane is pulling some serious G's at that point, and she just can't move. She glances out the window and sees Superman swoop by. Her expression of shock and amazement really says it all. It's one of the few times in this movie where Kate Bosworth really sold the moment. Shortly after that comes a moment where Superman puts down the plane in the baseball field and the crowd goes completely fucking insane. It says a lot about how much they missed Superman and wanted him back. Which kinda, sorta, totally contradicts the premise of the, uh, of the film, of a world that's moved on without Superman. It's still a good moment, it just doesn't fit with the stated intentions of the movie. By the way, John Ottman's score is especially effective in that sequence, incidentally, and I guess as a sort of, to move on to other things, as a sort of holistic thing, a lot of Kevin Spacey's dialogue is sharp and insightful as far as character development is concerned. This is a version of Lex who believes that he's so far ahead of everybody else that the idea of casual chit-chat is just a fucking joke to this guy. He can only deal with other people in a snide, derogatory, dismissive manner because he views them as so far beneath himself. This does call back somewhat to the comic book idea of Lex believing that he would have saved the world. If only. He, he might have cured cancer, or developed a new form of government, or brought peace to the Middle East, or, or something, something worthwhile, but he was constantly undermined by his inferiors, most especially Superman. And of course, my take on that is that it's a total lie. Lex doesn't have it in him to do that stuff. 
even if he was intellectually and personally capable of doing that stuff, he just doesn't have the moral scruples. He, But the thing is, he just doesn't see it that way. The high price paid for proud illusions. And almost all of Kevin Spacey's dialogue reflects that stuff, especially that rant that he gives Superman at the end of the movie, where he says that Superman took five years of his life. Lex fails to see his own culpability in that. It's not his fault for committing crimes, it's Superman's fault for arresting him. Apart from that, there's a neat moment where Superman flies through Metropolis after Lois and Clark say their goodbyes outside the Daily Planet building, after Clark's first day back on the job following the airplane rescue. Pedestrians are very well accustomed to seeing Superman flying around, so the novelty here is more that they haven't seen that in a really long time rather than having never seen it before. It's just a really neat, though brief, moment. After that, Superman follows Lois home. Now, apart from the fact that it's a little creepy to do something like that, the visual effects here just fucking don't hold up. A lot of people snarkily call these effects PlayStation 2 caliber graphics, and you know, guys, thing is, I don't think they're wrong. So, what happened? I mean, you'd think that any effects house in Hollywood could do better work than this. So, why the hell didn't they? Well, partly it relates to some sordid rumors concerning Brian Singer that I mentioned a minute ago that really have never been verified, so I don't think I should talk about it in public. But another very likely explanation is that Singer just doesn't have an eye for effect sequences. But more than that, he just doesn't have an eye for effects themselves. I think it's quite probable that he reviewed this flying sequence and thought it was just fine. There are all sorts of technical remarks that I could make on how this could have been done better, but the one thing that makes this sequence kind of work for me is the music. It's that that somber aspect of John Ottman's score that accounts for a good chunk of the music that's used in this movie. It's very subdued. John Ottman used a chorale section for a lot of this score, and the end result is a it's basically music with a sort of churchy feel. It's consistently used through several major musical cues in the score. Now, Brian Singer played with the concept of Superman as a savior and vaguely a, a literary Christ figure. So on that basis, it actually makes a fair amount of sense to use a choir in the film score and kind of give it that sort of spiritual, vaguely churchy type of tone, you know? It's of a piece with the text of the film. So, oddly enough, this is one of the few examples I can think of when the intent of the filmmakers is actually brought out in a successful way. Now, I wouldn't say that this specific sequence of Superman following Lois home is very effective because of the stalker thing as well as the, the lousy visual effects, but the music is very nice. One area where the effects were were better was actually a neat moment when Superman meets Lois on the roof of the Daily Planet. He takes her for a spin around the city, and 
This scene is one of the most important in the movie because it's really the only time Superman and Lois really level with each other. Now, from a screenwriting standpoint, I can't help thinking that there should have been one scene where Lois airs her grievances to Superman. As stupid as those grievances are. And then a second scene where Superman and Lois resolve her grievances. But the characters introducing and then resolving a conflict in one scene is kind of weak sauce. And this is all the more true for the defining conflict between those two characters in the film. More time should have been spent with this. In any case, though, there's a clever bit of writing going on here. I hear everything. You wrote that the world doesn't need a savior. But every day I hear people crying for one. Sorry I left you, Lois. I'll take you back now. So, a little bit of a double entendre there. Did Superman mean that he'll take Lois back to the Daily Planet now? Or did he mean that he wants to get back together with her now? It's a little irrelevant either way because Superman and Lois nearly kiss. And then Lois says... Richard's a good man. And you've been gone a long time. I know. This tends to undermine a lot of things, not least of which is Superman as a character. And Lois is effectively married. She's established a stable family unit with Richard and Jason. Superman is now intruding on that. It doesn't really matter if everybody knows Jason's paternity or not. Jason recognizes Richard as his father. Lois is committed to Richard as her husband, more or less. It's just inappropriate. Anyway, another effective moment comes later on when Lex menaces Jason with the kryptonite. He has his suspicions right then and there as to who Jason's true father is, but obviously the penny drops for real when he finds out that one of his henchmen has gotten smashed by the piano. And, just on a personal level, I find it kind of amusing that Lex figured it out sooner than anybody else in the film. Anyway, not very long after that, Clark finds Lois is in deep shit out at sea, so he switches to Superman in order to check it out. And pretty much, with some brief exceptions, but pretty much from the time that he finds the coordinates, there's really not very much dialogue in the movie for the next several minutes. At this point, the movie's carried primarily by visuals and music. This, arguably, is Singer in his element. There's no real dialogue to mess with. The drama and the action are carried by other elements. Now, Yeah, like I say, Singer is not an action director. There's really no denying that. But in Superman Returns, more than just about any other movie that Singer's ever directed, 
He depends on fairly minimalistic dialogue for long stretches of the movie and allows other things to carry the weight of the storytelling. It's an effective way to make a film, even if Singer himself frequently struggles with the finer points of crafting engaging action sequences. Much later on, there's a bit where Superman watches Jason sleep. Now, putting aside the inherent lurky, McCreepy aspect of an outsider forcing his way into a sleeping child's bedroom, yeah, Superman's the kid's father, so I guess that much adds up. And he's obviously swelling with pride, love, and hope for his son. And it drives home the point that Superman never needed to leave Earth in order to find his people. They were always right here. The high price paid for proud illusions. So anyway, final thoughts. After 10 years, I do believe it's fair to say that Superman Returns is a pretty fucking schizophrenic movie. Singer wanted to do a character piece starring a superhero. Warner Brothers wanted a summer action fest. The combination of those two agendas is not a successful one. If anything, they usually cancel each other out. Singer's romantic drama is constantly undermined by studio notes saying he needs to sell more toys. Warner Brothers' much-needed action scenes were rushed and incomplete in most cases because of Singer's methodical approach to shooting the talkie scenes. Singer's meditation on middle-aged romance is constantly interrupted by the need to maintain the action quotient. Both sides suffer. Compromise is not beneficial in this case. One side or the other should have yielded completely. Combining these two approaches harms both, diminishes the whole, and, oddly enough, results in a final product that's less than the sum of its parts. The high price paid for proud illusions. On the one hand, the basic struggle that Superman goes through, questions like, do I like who I am? Am I happy with what I've become? Those struggles are something that resonate a bit more deeply for me on this side of 30, coming as I am, ever closer to 40. On the other hand, though, I have to question if Superman's the right character to use for this type of story. And I have to say, I'm just not sure that he is. In fact, I have my doubts as to whether this is an appropriate subject for the superhero genre. But even if it is, and even if it should involve Superman, I just don't think Singer is the guy to tell this story. The only really positive thing I can say is that 10 years after this movie's release, I do somewhat better identify with Superman's central conflict in this story. The decisions that he's made prior to the beginning of the movie elude me. I suspect they always will. But I do see where Superman's coming from after he returns in hopes of starting up something new instead of picking up right where he left off without Lois along for the ride, only to discover that he's on his own and his truly is a never-ending battle because that's what we need him to do. The irony of missing out on the very life he now craves because of his journey into the stars is a bitter fucking pill to swallow 
and it brings up the relatable issue we all experience of second-guessing our life choices at about middle age, halfway through the game. If nothing else, I suppose it's comforting to know that even Superman isn't immune to that. Now, was this a movie that desperately needed to be made? You know, I sometimes think that I'm too close to it to say for certain. I waited over three quarters of my life up to that point for a new Superman film, so my expectations were sky-fucking-high. I'm not sure that objectivity is a possibility for me when it comes to Superman Returns. I'm not sure that I'm the guy to answer that question. What I can say is I wanted something other than what Singer was prepared to give. That, when all is said and done, may be the fairest, most polite way to phrase it. In the end, I believe Warner Brothers should have, in, should have agreed in principle to make Superman Returns, but insisted that Singer do a proper reboot first to properly introduce or reintroduce the characters and the story to wide audiences. Lacking that, they should have at least allowed, or required, Singer to cast age-appropriate actors for all of these characters, but these fresh-faced, CW-friendly actors just don't benefit the story at all. In the final analysis, I'll always regard Superman Returns as one of the great missed opportunities in Superman's entire history. This film barely meets any of the potential it sets up for itself, irrespective of which actor plays which character, or whether or not a reboot film should have been done prior to this movie coming out. Age has given me a new perspective on Superman Returns, and there's no denying that, but it'd be wrong to say that I'm a fan of this movie now. The elements of the movie that bothered me on opening day 10 years ago still bother me today. All that's really changed at this point is that I can appreciate aspects of Superman's perspective in this film, and this in spite of how clumsy the narrative is put together and how thinly sketched a lot of the characters are at times. And honestly, the film itself has nothing to do with that. My own age is a bigger factor in my changing perspective than the film is. Still, one positive aspect about Superman Returns is that it spelled out the necessity of a reboot, I think in pretty clear language. Whether or not you believe Zack Snyder should have been the guy rebooting the franchise is a, perhaps another topic for another day. And that, I think, is pretty much it for the 10-year retrospective anniversary special for Superman Returns. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be rejoined by Chris Honeywell so that he and I can talk and talk and talk some more. But that's next week. I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Jeff? Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. 
Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, you, you know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a... Honestly, I don't really have a whole lot more to say, at least about Superman Returns, but one of the things I decided to do was just open up the floodgates at least a little bit and allow you guys to speak your mind a little bit. What did you think about Superman Returns as a film? And... There's, there was actually a, a fairly narrow gap in time between when I invited people to send in their feed forward, for lack of a better expression, versus when I'm actually recording this. So, just keep that in mind. Now, the first, the first item of business that we need to work through here, this is an email that was sent in by my old friend. His name is Doug Meacham. He sent in his, uh, his email here. This, the, the subject line reads, My Superman Returns Experience. And the email is as follows. Greetings, Your Excellency. I was glad to hear you were planning on doing a retrospective of Superman Returns after hearing your opinion of the film in previous episodes of your show. I have to say, I agree with some of them. I saw Superman Returns opening day at a, at a theater in Port Angeles, Washington, after much anticipation. During that anticipation, I wasn't bothered by the fact that they were continuing in the Donner universe. At the time, it made sense to me because I was in love with that version of Superman and still am to this day. My first impressions of Brandon, Ra Brandon Routh were mixed. I wasn't really in favor of the costume design because the colors were off. The S was too small, and there was an, un an unnecessary S on the belt buckle. Though I thought Brandon looked almost exactly like Christopher Reeve, and from what I saw of him in the trailers, I had high hopes for him. I also felt that Kevin Spacey portraying Lex Luthor was brilliant casting. The decision to use the John Williams score again also made sense to me. I was on board for this film and was ready to soar up, up, and away. And then I saw the film. Okay. I enjoyed it with some issues up to the completion of the shuttle 
slash plane rescue scene. I was irked that we got a half-ass shirt rip, but with the building tension and accompanying music, I was willing to overlook that. I thought the special effects were awesome, and I still stop what I'm doing to watch that scene if it's on TV. Ralph embodied the Superman I grew up to love and was enjoying his portrayal. After the rescue scene, the film began to slide downhill for me. In my opinion, that scene is the peak of the film. I completely mentally checked myself out of the film when the kid was revealed. It's not that I have anything against Superman having a child. In parentheses, he writes, I'm currently loving the Rebirth comics. Close parentheses. I just didn't care for how they went about it in this film. Spacey's Lex Luthor had some great moments, and I feel with better material, he would have knocked the role out of the park. And I won't mention Kate Bosworth as Lois Lane. Because, you know, we do not speak of Kate Bosworth. After seeing the film, I felt the need to flush it out of my system, so I grabbed some Wendy's and went home to watch Superman the movie. I felt better afterwards. Ten years later, my opinion hasn't changed much when it comes to this film. It's been a while since I've sat down and watched it all the way through. In hindsight, I'm glad it happened, because we... we would never have gotten Man of Steel in its current form. Thanks for taking the time to read this email on your show, Your Excellency. Signed, your loyal sub uh, subject, Doug Meacham. And let me just reply to that by saying, uh, Doug, thank you very much. I guess number one, for your friendship, but number two, for taking the time to actually write this email. And, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of guilty of doing with my show is I sometimes... It's not that I don't realize that not everybody agrees with me. It's just sometimes I don't always, I'm not always sensitive to, to that. And so the fact that it looks like your opinion of the movie is slightly higher than mine. It doesn't look like much higher, but slightly higher than mine. I don't know. Hopefully nothing that you've heard up to now is upsetting to you. Put it that way. Specifically, the parts about Brandon Routh, because I, suffice it to say, I'm not big on Brandon Routh, and that, that may be the most diplomatic way to phrase it. So, anyway. So, as far as the email is concerned, that was actually all, I, uh, all that's come through, at least at the time that I record all of this. The other bits of feed forward that I got, this first one comes from Mike Zuma. Now, before I actually get into what he sent, because this is actually audio feed forward, this isn't uh, an email. He actually recorded something, and I'm, about, I'm actually about to play it uh, for you guys in just a sec. But before I get into that, what you need to know is that Mike Zumo is the host of the Man of Screen podcast, which follows Superman on TV and in movies. And I'm... I don't know. I want to say I'm something like three or four episodes behind on this. But as far as I know, he's actually spent quite a bit of uh, uh, quite a bit of his time uh, discussing the uh, Adventures of Superman a TV show from the 50s. I think he may actually still be in the first season. You know what? I probably should have double-checked this, but you know what? He may have actually made it over to the second season. Well, whatever. The point is, if 
he's still in the first season, he's got to be nearly finished with it. And if he's reached into the second season, he's, my guess is, he's probably still near the beginning. So put a pencil to it. Either way, though, um, basically, I'm about three or four episodes behind. But guys, this is a fun little podcast. I do recommend uh, giving it a listen. A lot of times, podcasts and podcasters they need a chance to kind of get their feet wet and figure out, you know, how to do this. And even so, the Man of uh, the Man of Screen podcast is actually started off, I think, really strong. This is as strong as any podcast launch that I've ever heard. It's as strong as any of them, and I dare say stronger than most. So do yourselves a favor and, and check into this. But anyway, what Mike, uh, what Mike, Z- oh, sorry. Sorry, Mike, I almost forgot the most important part of all. The Man of Screen podcast, you can find it at manofscreen.podomatic.com. Or I suppose you could probably take the easy way out and then just Google Man of Screen podcast. But if you want the direct URL, well, there you go. manofscreen.podomatic.com. And what Mike Zumo had to say is as follows. Hey, Magnus, Mike Zumo here. Superman Returns. You know, sometimes about this movie, I really don't know what to say. You know, this movie took him out, as we know, 19 years after the last theatrical Superman movie, which was not very well received. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which was ironically the first Superman movie I remember seeing in the movies as a child. But that's that movie and not Superman Returns. I was looking forward to this one from... The minute I heard about it, mainly because it had been so long since we had gotten the Superman movie. In the time between Superman 4 and this, we've seen five Batman movies released theatrically. Well, six if you count Mask of the Phantasm. At least two of the three Raimi Spider-Man films and three X-Men films that were released. So, needless to say, I was ready for my favorite character to get another shot on the big screen. I wound up seeing the movie about a week or so after it came out. Yeah, I saw the film twice in the theaters. Once with the girl I was dating at the time, and I went later with my father, because he's into some of the nerd stuff as well. Not so much now, but when I was growing up, he was, and he kind of drifted off from it since then. But I remember we came out, and he, he described it as a pretty decent movie. And... You know, he didn't have a problem with the Jason White, Son of Superman thing as the rest of us did, but... And you know what, I don't know if I had a big problem with that at the time, but... But since that version of Superman is gone, there's really no reason to dwell on that too much. I do remember my first experience seeing the film in the theater. I kind of walked away from it very... really pumped. You know, I I enjoyed myself in the, in the movie theater when I went to see it for the first time. I don't know if that was because I enjoyed the movie, or... Maybe I was just so swept up in the kind of, as a Superman fan, the euphoria of finally seeing Superman on the big screen again. So that could have gone a long way into my reaction to seeing the film. And I attribute it to that because every time I watch this film again, I seem to like it a little bit less. And it's not the Superman movie I wanted at the time. You know, there was all the commotion of that it was loosely based on the Reeve movies. And I just felt as though it was too slavish to 
films that were at that point. The first one was 28 years old, so I didn't think we needed something that harkened back to that so much. I understand that Singer and all of them loved it, but even in 2006, I felt as though it was time to let the Christopher Reeve version of Superman go into the past with the other great Superman of, the, of their eras, George Reeves, Kirk Allen, and all them. Uh, what I really wanted to see at that time was a Ground Zero reboot of Superman similar to what we got in 2013. I don't know if I wanted Man of Steel exactly as it turned out, but I wanted a new Superman, not something that called back too much to the old ones. I guess I don't look back on this movie very fondly because it wasn't really what I was looking for at that time. One of the things I always said, I always read that Bryant Singer and the, the writers, I believe their names were Doherty and Harris, they always said they couldn't picture anyone else as Jor-El. Well, you know what? If you can't picture another actor as a character, especially one that's been done and redone over the decades as Superman's characters have, if you're too attached to one iteration that you can't even fathom another, then I question your creativity and whether or not they should have been making that film. Now, as far as Brandon Routh goes, he was not the worst thing that happened to that movie. Honestly, I found the approach that Singer and company took to this film to kind of be unfair to Brandon Routh as they were basically asking him to play Christopher Reeve playing Superman and that's really not fair to any actor. He really never got the opportunity to make the role his own and after having seen him, granted it was years later, so his acting skills may have grown in the years. After seeing what he'd, what he'd been able to do on Arrow and as Ray Palmer and some of what I saw on Legends of Tomorrow, I would have liked to have seen him get a shot as Superman in, in a script that would have allowed him to make the role his own but we're never going to see that one of my favorite sequences of the film was the airplane sequence that was probably still in my eyes one of the best superman rescues on film and i also have a fondness for the scene where superman rescues the ship out of the ocean saving lois and her family there i've always felt a superman movie should have moments where you want to get up and cheer and for all of its flaws, Superman Returns did have a few of those scenes, i.e. the two scenes I just mentioned, and to a lesser extent the scene where he lifts the giant island into space. It was a so-so Superman movie. Now, I don't look back on it with the fondest of memories, but my reaction to it back then was I was just happy that to get another Superman movie. I think a lot of us needed a Superman movie at that time, and what I think a lot of us Superman fans fail to recognize when Superman hasn't gotten a solo film since 2013's Man of Steel is how good we've had it over the years. Maybe not so much on the big screen, but definitely on TV. Since the Christopher Reeve movies came out, Superman has been on the screen in one form or another pretty constantly since 1978. So I don't mind some of the other characters getting their spotlight now. Superman will get it again. I wish I had better things to say about Superman Returns, but as the first Superman film to hit the theaters in 20 years, it definitely didn't return with the triumph that I believe the character should have come with. I would have liked to have seen better. And I do wish Brandon Routh would have gotten another opportunity in the role because I think he did a good job despite the shortcoming of the film. That's all I've got. So this is Mike Zumo signing off. Thanks, Magnus, for giving me the opportunity to send this in. Mike Zumo, ladies and gentlemen. And again, you can find the home for the Man of Screen podcast at manofscreen.podomatic.com. Now, Mike, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to record all of that and sending it over to me. Much appreciated, sir. And by the way, good job.
both on your feed forward that I just played and also on your podcast in general. Nice, nice going. The next bit of audio feedback that I have to go through here, this is, uh, th this actually comes from uh, Christopher Ouellette, and he's the host of the, uh, of the uh, podcast. This is called Beware of Monsters, which you can find at bewareofmonsters.com slash beware hyphen of hyphen monsters hyphen podcast. Or, again, I assume what you could also do is Google Beware of Monsters podcast. So, either way you look at it, though, Christopher Willette is the host of the Beware of Monsters podcast. And guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, at least as far as, um, I don't know, entertainment is concerned. You know, like this, in, in terms of like fanboy type stuff, you know, geek stuff, I, I'm just not real big on monsters and whatnot. So, uh, uh, Christopher, no offense. Huh? <laughs> you know, the last thing I need is for you to come over to my house and beat the shit out of me. But it's it, it's just I'm, I'm I'm basically I I what I don't want is for you to feel like I'm insulting you or something like that because I would never do that. So just truth in advertising. This is pretty far outside of my typical wheelhouse. And Christopher, again, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings or be mean or anything like that. So I really hope you know, this isn't going to be a problem. I just, I, I just want to be honest here. That's all. So as I say, monsters, not really my thing, but I got to tell you, Christopher, my sense of, uh, of Christopher is that he's, he's not, he's not just into those types of movies. And, and I guess just those types of stories, those ideas, those characters and concepts and whatnot. He's extremely knowledgeable about it. And so what I've heard of the, uh, of the uh, Beware of Monsters podcast is that he understands, again, Christopher, no offense, but it's like Christopher understands that what he's talking about is a little bit niche. And so on the one hand, he presents, I think, a very, what at least sounds to me like a very informed opinion on the matter, on the one hand. But on the other hand, he makes it accessible. You know, so it's easy to listen to if you have no idea where to start with monsters. But if you do know about monsters, then, hey, you're talking to or rather you're listening to one of your own, you know, so it actually he finds that that kind of even balance. And I say it's an even balance to me as a total outsider. Anybody who knows anything at all about monsters automatically, you know, more than I do. So. Maybe I'm wrong there, but my sense is, you know, his podcast is accessible both to complete outsiders like me, because so far it has been, and it's also accessible to people who are a little bit more aficionados when it comes to monsters and whatnot. And anyway, all of this is a really long way of saying that this is what uh, Christopher Willette, the host of the Beware of Monsters podcast, had to say in his feed forward. Hello, this is Christopher Willette from Beware of Monsters podcast, and I am here for the Superman Returns retrospective, and I'm 
very excited about this. Okay, Superman Returns. I saw that in theaters opening day. At the time, I was doing movie reviews, and I think that was more the catalyst for me seeing the film, but... I was pretty excited because I liked Superman, so woohoo. And this is the thing. People say you can't go home again, and this movie sort of disproved that for me. Because when I was seven years old, I was vacationing with my family in Maine, and my mother and my grandmother took my little brother and I to the movies, and we saw Superman the movie, the first one with Christopher Reeve. And Prior to that, I know I knew who Superman was. We had superhero stuff. I remember getting stickers on that trip and making Wonder Woman stuff for my grandmother. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, Superman, um, mostly I guess I knew him from the Super Friends and other cartoons, and of course the George Reeves show. And. Um, which, if I understood how to use the TV guide at that time, I would have seen a lot more of. But when I saw that movie, it blew me away. The whole you can believe a man can fly there, I did. It was amazing. And in fact, I remember at one point, my grandmother and my mother, like, giggling when the babies picked up the car because, you know, oh, it's a penis. And I, on the other hand, just could not believe they were giggling, like, it was baby Superman picking up a car. Like, nothing else mattered. And that movie, I, I saw it afterwards. I saw, um, I believe I saw all of them except for three in the theaters. But I loved that film. And then afterwards, my local library had the record, Pops in Space, which had John Williams on a spaceship, and I checked it out every time I could until finally my mother bought the record player with the two tape decks, and I could just copy it. And then anytime I lost the tape, I'd check it out again and copy it again. So that went way way back and then I didn't really watch superhero kind of stuff for a while and going back to this it was amazing because as soon as that theme hits and the credits start it was like I was back at seven years old and Brendan Ralph was not as good as Christopher Reeve but he was good and it was a solid movie that I really enjoyed. And the other thing was, I liked what they did bringing in the Jesus symbolism. And the way they did it seemed not, like, heavy-handed or anything. But, I, and I realize, okay, I realize the creators of Superman were Jewish. And if they had anything, it was more of a Moses thing where... Um, put in the small arc and set adrift to go to the princess or to the Kents. Who, but really, originally their names were not Jonathan and Martha. They, I forget what they were. Um, my daughter and I read the first Superman novel recently, but they had different names and there was none of that in there because Jonathan and Martha, of course, go with Joseph and Mary. So really what I think happened was that... They created Superman to be the super version of themselves, thus a super Jewish person. And 
really, when he evolved and got into the hands of other people with a Christian background, and you're looking at the super Jewish person, you're going to connect with Jesus. It's just going to happen because, you know, I realize a lot of people (laughs) miss this, but Jesus was Jewish, and he was supposed to be the epitome of that. So that symbolism has never bothered me. It seems natural. I'm fine even with bouncing back and forth between Moses and Jesus symbolism. And Superman has it both. I mean, Man of Steel doubles down on the Jesus symbolism from the, like, (laughs) no room at the manger, immaculate birth at the beginning, and then, yeah, it just keeps going. It's nearly nonstop, but I think that started, at least for a movie, I'd never really seen that before um, in a live-action Superman other than Superman Returns. So I thought all of that was cool. It was a neat way to bring in the symbolism. It was a great performance. It was a fun movie. And that that was it. I didn't think it was like deep or important. I didn't think it was going to do anything like, oh, I'm so inspired kind of thing. But which actually I feel very inspired and uplifted by Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. So I don't know, maybe now you're disregarding the rest of everything I have to say. But I enjoyed the movie and I'm driving home with my wife and I'm telling her about Maine and I'm telling her about um, the symbolism and how cool it was that he used the line about air air travel being (laughs) the safest and him picking up the car and matching the cover of Action Comics. I thought that was all really cool. And she's like, and what did you think of Superman Jesus having a bastard child? And I don't think she used the word bastard. I think I threw that in there later. So, um, and then I was like, yeah, about that. And I don't know, I was just very swept up in the moment. So, like, who knows? The the movie could be terrible. And I was just so into that because I haven't seen it since. So maybe I am totally not qualified to be doing this, but I'm so excited to be punching reality. So I'm doing it anyway. So, (laughs) yeah, I started thinking about that. And I realized, like, the whole, I knew this was supposed to be the alternate Superman 3. Like, if Superman 1 and 2 happened, and we know that with Richard Pryor, it goes off the rail, so here's the Superman 2 that we wanted, not the Superman 3 that we deserved. And that makes it really creepy, because I I don't have to get into how creepy all of this is, but just to bring it, like, Superman 2, he married Lois and then he does the spin the world backwards to make her forget because he realizes this was a mistake and that alone is just kind of crappy and it's also hard from a storytelling point of view because like what did that cost him can he keep doing that I think it need like I really I was very impressed with the whole faces in the clouds. It is forbidden. It is forbidden. And that was neat. Like, it is a big deal to do this. But once he did it and found out, hey, it worked well, why doesn't he just do that all the time? That's obviously, it's kind of a weird hole that the writers have put themselves in. But then you get to Superman Returns and the kid is his. So that means that despite the 
go back in time, erase her memory stuff, the consequences of the action still continued. Because frankly, I mean, I'm assuming that since he's Superman, she would have remembered having sex with him. Like, that's not something that's going to slip someone's mind unless we reversed time. And that, I think, makes it even more creepy. Like, so not only did you marry her, have your honeymoon, and then turn back time to before you married her. So, none of that happened. I don't have to be married to you anymore. I can go fly around and look for the debris of Krypton. And... But she still has the consequences, so she has no memory of this. And how does that work? And I realize people have made jokes about this, so I'm not going to get into that, but I don't know. Once I start going down that trail and... Here he is, Superman, like this icon of do the right thing, the big blue Boy Scout, all of that. And you're throwing on to him symbolism of Jesus. And I mean, whether you're going with like you believe in Jesus or as a literary character, you are putting some pretty serious like cred onto this guy who is now transferring his essence. Like, they're they're still going with the Jesus symbolism with the child, though it might be like the masks of Jesus, where Jesus is a mask that whoever wears during time and it's passed on. But regardless of any of that, it's like, you're kind of a jerk. Like... Take responsibility. You you shouldn't have done that. It makes it so much creepier. And with that, I've never really been able to go back to Superman Returns. And it kind of tainted my warm feelings, like time traveling, remembering when I was a kid. Because it was just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of yucky. I don't know, maybe that's how Twilight fans feel when they get to the end and realize, wait, she's 16 and he's 190? Huh. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for letting me be part of this, Mr. Magnus. I look forward to hearing everybody else's memories of Superman Returns. And again, that's Christopher Willette from the Beware of Monsters podcast. So to Doug, Mike, and Christopher, thanks all of you for taking the time to send in your feed forward here. This is actually a lot of fun to do, so I may actually do this in, in future episodes. I don't know. I haven't really made up my mind yet. So either way, I think that's pretty much it for me, at least as far as Superman Returns. And golly, this episode turned out to be a lot longer than I was originally expecting. But hey, what can you do? Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
Come with me now on a fun journey. A journey that will take us many years into the past, where a long time ago, the character Superman first graced the pages of action comics. But there was technology more advanced, and it brought forth a race of moviegoers, men and women like ourselves, but advanced to the absolute peak of human entertainment. They wanted to see their character adapted in other media. They made him the Man of Screen. The Man of Screen podcast will chronicle the adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts, the Kirk Allen movie serials, Superman and the Mole Men, the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Superman, the Christopher Reeve movies, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Woolnatt with a very important message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film, literature, from comic books, video games, from any place we find them lurking. Beware of monsters. You can find more information by searching Beware of Monsters in iTunes, your podcatcher program, or the RSS feed on BewareOfMonsters.com. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join us now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world. Friend, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook, 
just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners, and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>